0: Of this clash between, really not just Moses and Pharaoh, but God and Pharaoh, as God's people have been in captivity for 430 years, God has heard their cry. God has sent a deliverer by the name of. Okay, good job, Mitch. And uh, not, no, it's not Mitch. It's Moses. I was addressing Mitch. Yeah, in the Hebrew, it's Mitch. Um. And Moses was obviously told to go into Pharaoh, say, hey, God says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, who is this God that I should obey him? And so what we've been tracking with is God has been sending plague after plague after plague to show Pharaoh just who he is, to, heart, to, to, to break Pharaoh. Pharaoh has hardened his heart against God. God has honored that and hardened Pharaoh's heart. And things have just escalated and escalated and escalated. We saw last week that the... the, the, the plague last time was darkness but now it's death and so what we're going to look at is um this this final plague that's going to be the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back this is going to be the one that that expels them out of egypt it's deliverance by death so here's kind of the approach tonight and it's a hefty it's not just this crescendo of a story Guys, this is one of the most beautiful, listen to me, one of the most beautiful Old Testament types and pictures of our deliverance from spiritual death. This story like maybe none other in the in the in the Old Testament foreshadows what Jesus will come and do for us. And so the approach I want to take is we're going to go all of chapter 11 and probably most of chapter 12 will stop just shy of the actual exodus of them actually leaving but we're going to look at this plague of death to the firstborn um, of every family in Egypt and so um, chapter 11 will be kind of the announcement or the promise of that plague chapter 12 will be some instructions and the actual uh, showdown so I'm going to try to move quickly through the text, track with me, and then we'll circle back, and I want to just extract, I think, what the main points that we need to take away tonight are. So uh, chapter 11 and verse uh, 1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more will I bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will deliver you away completely. Now speak now in the hearing of the people, that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. The roles have switched. Pharaoh's not the main man anymore. People are like, yeah, whatever. They're looking at Moses and going, you're the guy. This This is great. To get them ready, God says, here's what I want you to do. All you Hebrew people, go to your masters and ask them for silver and gold. And we're gonna see that when they actually leave, they, are, they literally plunder the Egyptians. The Egyptians are giving them all their silver and all their gold saying, get out of here. Now, doesn't this seem a little weird to you? Like, is that awkward? Like, um, can I have your silver and gold jewelry? But listen, God's not taking advantage of them. You could count this as back pay. This is back pay. Guys, they have been working uh, for nothing, and they have been abused. And so they're getting some, if you would, back pay here, but it's all in preparation. Look at verse 4. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt such has never been nor ever will be again verse 7 but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel either man or beast that you may know that the Lord God makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me saying, get out um, all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. So clearly Moses is saying this before Pharaoh. Pharaoh basically had told Moses, I don't want to see your face again. The next time I see you, you're dead. But they're obviously in front of one another because look at it says in verse nine, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not, excuse me, the verse eight, And he, that is Moses, went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go out of the land. So this is really important that we understand what exactly this plague of death is. The word firstborn is used four times in that section. And what he's saying is, he's saying, Pharaoh, this is not a threat. I am telling you what's going to happen. I am going to send death to the land of Egypt. And the firstborn of every household, and it doesn't matter if you are rich and you're the Pharaoh himself or you're some slave, it doesn't matter, throughout the entire land, there's going to be death to the firstborn of every of every family now for those of you guys who have been tracking with the story god's keeping his promise to what he said in chapter 4 verses 21 through 23 where in essence god said to moses to tell pharaoh look israel is my firstborn son and if you don't let my son go i'm going to kill your son and so he's making good on that promise um so that's what's going to happen that's the threat not threat i don't like that it's a promise God's going to do this. Look at verse 10. It's kind of a summary statement. It says, Moses inherited all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of the land. I like that statement because it's almost like after all of that, Pharaoh still didn't let him go out of the land. Just kind of summing up all the the previous nine plagues, can you believe that after all that, he still hardened his heart? Well, let's get into chapter 12. Now in chapter 12, we know what the plague is going to be, death of the firstborn. But in chapter 12, God is now going to make provision for salvation. Now look at chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 13. He's going to give instructions about the Passover. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel... um, that on the tenth month of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then the nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count uh, for the lamb. Verse five Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So the first thing I want to point out to you is that um, he, he says, basically, this thing that I'm going to do, is, and we'll see this as we go on, it's, it's really going to mark a new beginning for this nation. So much so that he changes their calendar. Oh, they would have their, their normal calendar, but now what he's saying is, we're going to start, if you would, a religious calendar, and this month that he's talking about, Abib or Nisan, he says, this is going to be the first month if, of your religious calendar. And it would have been like, it's basically our March or April. And what he says is on the 10th of this, this month, Abib or Nisan, um, you're going to take this lamb or a goat and... You're going to hold on to it into your house until the 14th, and then you're going to kill that lamb um, on the 14th at twilight. So what's happening here. What God is saying is this. There's going to be death, but what you can do is you can take a lamb and kill that lamb, and that lamb will, in essence, be a substitution for the firstborn. So hold on to that thought. That's the key thought throughout this whole thing. Again, this lamb, notice it couldn't just be any lamb. It had to be a lamb, what? Without blemish. That means that it couldn't have any defects, anything wrong with it. It had to be a male, and it had to be a a year old. And the idea there is in the prime of its life, and you might say, it's only a year old. How can it be a prime of its life? Well, they only lived about 10 years, so it's in the prime of its life. And you take this young, tender, innocent, without blemish lamb, you're to kill it at twilight the idea of twilight is between the sunrises and they they say that um it's from about 3 p.m till 5 p.m at the the given signal they're all to kill the lambs at the same time we'll just keep going on with the story and we'll kind of pull the string and pull it all together here in a few minutes it says then you shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it so they take this lamb kill it take the blood The lintel is the the horizontal cross beam above the doorway. They're to paint that and the side post with the blood of this lamb. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall not let any of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning, you shall burn. Check it out, verse 11. In this manner, you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. Scarf it down. It is the Lord's Passover. Now just, again, just kind of looking at the instructions God's giving him. Take a lamb, young lamb, male, without blemish. You're to uh, kill it, take the blood, smear it on the lintel and on the doorpost, and then roast that bad boy and eat it. And, and eat it with some, some unleavened bread. and that, That'll be something that'll come up again later. And bitter herbs, and again, the bitter herbs would, would be to remind them of their bitter time in Egypt. And he says, just eat it, scarf it down. Notice, you know, usually dinner, I don't know about you guys, I don't come home from, you know, a day of work or whatever and just still keep my shoes on and my coat and, you know, like a staff in hand and eat. Dinner's usually like when you like let down your guard, you relax, and he's like, nuh-uh. He's like, I want your shoes on, I want a staff in your hand, I want your backpack, I want the U-Haul, Parked in front of your garage, ready to go, padlock on, because you're gonna eat this. And I'm telling you, it's going down. Can you imagine? By the way, just to crawl into their mindset, the anticipation this would be stirring up in them. Plague after plague after plague. There's been hope, let down, hope, let down, hope, let down. But then finally, God's like, "Get ready. You guys are out of here." These guys have never left Egypt. Do you understand that? They they weren't like from Canaan, the Promised Land, and in Egypt for a while. There's been generation after generation after generation after generation in Egypt. They've only heard stories. This is such a brand new thing about to happen in their life. No more slavery. And God's saying, get ready, because it's going down. Well, then he says in verse 13, excuse me, verse 12. Now listen, he says, because I will pass before, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and man, and beast, which is kind of crazy. And at all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. We have to pause there, right? Because throughout our whole study of the plagues, plague one, two, three, all through nine, we've been showing that the plagues were not random. They weren't just like God haphazardly. I don't know, how can I make their life miserable? I know frogs. No, it was very pointed because they had a God for, they had a frog God. And God was showing the impotence of their false gods and declaring there's only one God, Jehovah God. And so each one, he's knocking their little idols down. And now in, verse, in, in, in the, the 10th plague, it's kind of like he's saying, look, on this one, we're just judging all of them. Just all of them. I, I remember uh, several years ago, I had the opportunity to travel to India and to Nepal. And I was there doing some pastor's conferences with, in, in Kathmandu I always like to just say I've been to Kathmandu because it sounds like like you're super cultured and well-traveled anyway um but it's just the saddest thing like good one of my closest friends is, is Indian and we were back visiting some of his family and he's just showing me all the very like just the god the, the idol factories the idols everywhere Hindus have zillion, you know, so many different gods and, the, and it's just superstition and false and so sad when you see people roped into false gods, whether it's one that an idol has been made or one we've erected in our hearts, but God says, look, I wanna make something real clear. I am the Lord. There's no God other than me. There's only one God. It's Jehovah God, creator of all things. And, and he says, and, and this is the final judgment on that, And then in verse 13, he says, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. Look at this. This is so, just so crazy. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So do we have the picture so far? The plague is death of the firstborn. God is providing a way of salvation. It's through this death of a lamb the blood to be applied to the house. When the angel of death goes through, he passes over every house that has blood on it, every house that doesn't, even amongst the Hebrews, there would be, a, there would be death. Well, now there's kind of a, not a parenthetical, but he switches gears a little bit, and he's now gonna give instructions about how they're gonna memorialize this in the future. And I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on it only because it it reappears in the next chapter. So we're gonna be like spending a lot of time on this uh, later anyway, but we'll just kind of get through it for now. He says, this day shall be for a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to your Lord throughout all your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Now he's instituting this brand new feast. He says, seven days, verse 15, you shall eat unleavened bread. That is bread that doesn't have like yeast in it. It It won't rise Uh, By the way, leaven is a picture in the Bible of sin. Uh, But the idea here is that they had to leave in haste. They didn't have time to let the bread rise. They just had to eat it flat, if you would. He says, for seven days you will eat unleavened bread, and on the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. And if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day to the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. And on the first day you shall have a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work will be done on those days. But what every, uh, everyone needs to eat, that only or alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. And for this th- very day, I brought you uh, your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout all your generations as a statute forever. In the f- first month from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month, In the evening, for seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Did you make that clear? No leaven. (laughs) Uh, One of our trips to Israel, again, is my travel log tonight, I guess. Um, One of our trips to Israel... It happened to fall on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And really, it's two feasts pressed into one because it's really the Passover, which is the 14th, which is the first day of unleavened bread, and it goes for that week. And so leading up to that, every home, every observant home in Israel, they go throughout the house, and they look for any crumbs, any treats, any Twinkies hiding somewhere, and they sweep out all the leaven, and it's supposed to be this idea of searching your heart or whatever. But they told us in our hotels, they're like, look, they're going to come into your hotel while you're out touring. So if you have any snacks out, they will throw them away. So hide them in your suitcase. A little pro tip for you on your next trip to Israel. Hide your goodies if you go on Unleavened Bread. So again, this is, the whole point of this is they're going to memorialize this event. And again, we're going to talk about it more later. But just for now, we'll just let it settle that, that God is in essence saying um, what's about to happen It's something I want you to teach your kids and it's gonna be, and it is until this day, uh, something that in Israel uh, they celebrate and remember. We'll look at verse 21. Now he's getting back to instructions. Then Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin that it would be at the bottom of the door. "'Touch the lintel and the two doorposts "'with the blood that is in the basin. "'None of you shall go out of the door of this house "'until morning, for the Lord shall pass through "'to strike the Egyptians. "'And when he sees the blood on the lintel "'and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door "'and will not allow the destroyer "'to enter your house to strike you. "'You shall observe this rite as a statute "'for you and your sons forever. "'And when you come to the land, "'the Lord will give you as he has promised.'" you will keep this service. Look at verse 26. This is great. And when your children say to you, what do, we, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it's a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. He passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt and when he struck the Egyptians, but he spared these houses and the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Verse 28, and I love this. Then the people of Israel went out and did so and the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, they did. So it, it was go time, like, no more theory, no more instruction. He says, go out. Guys, go, elders, go choose your lamb. Kill it. Take the blood with a, a bunch of hyssop. Now, hyssop was like, just like a little bush, basically, in Israel. And they would gather a bunch of the, the twigs or the, a bunch of it together and make kind of, if you would, a rough paintbrush, I guess, for lack of a better way of saying it. And they would use that. That was what they dipped in the blood and smeared on the door. Interestingly enough, later on, leviticus 23 other places other sacrifices that would be in the law hyssop was used a lot it's also very interesting that they dipped sour wine in hyssop as they raised it up to jesus when he's on the cross but i'm getting ahead of myself so he told told him to do that he said and and again back to this idea of memorializing he says this see every year when you do this it's for your benefit but then your kids are going to say why are we doing this dad well let me tell you the story that's, by the way, that's what I love about Christmas and things like that. I mean, obviously, well, I don't wanna ruin Christmas for you, but a lot of the, the ways in which we celebrate Christmas kinda of date back to some pagan ways, but you can redeem it. Why do we do a tree? Well, let me tell you about everlasting life and this evergreen tree, let me tell you about what the tree represents, the cross, and, but it's like a great opportunity just to share the gospel with your kids. Why do we do this, Dad? Let me tell you why. Anyway, that's kinda of the idea here. Why do we do this every year? Look at it real quick, because uh, I'm going to touch on it again. It says, the people bowed their heads and worshipped, and then they went out and they did it. Again, imagine the mind-blowing experience this is for these people. Okay, okay go kill the lamb. Okay, and and they, they, before they went out and killed the lamb, what did they do? They worshipped. Why were they worshipping? Why, why did they just spontaneously bow down and worship? Maybe it was because they were like, Praise God. He has provided a way to save us. And we're gonna get out of here. That was an appropriate thing to do. But they didn't stop at worshiping. Then they got up and did what Moses told them to do. And, And had they just said, this is so cool, but they never actually killed the lamb, guess what? It wouldn't have gone well for them. They had to actually follow through in faith on what God had called them to do. Keep moving with the story. Again, we'll bring it all together here in a few minutes. At midnight, The Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock, even their animals. Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Is that heavy? Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks, take your herds as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. (laughs) That's a reluctant admission that he was in trouble. Again, this is so heavy, I don't even know what to say to, to paint the picture for us, to create the emotion. I mean, this is sad. Of course, you, you know, the Pharaoh was kind of the bad guy, the, the antagonist in the story, if you would. But these are people with families that God loves. And there wasn't one household where there wasn't death. And you can almost just in your mind start to just play out the scenario how one family after another is discovering that their son or their daughter you know, is dead and just the collective wailing and screaming and pain throughout that entire land and in brokenness, um, Pharaoh says, get out of here. Just reluctantly, you know, caving in. And then on the way out, and bless me too. My goodness. Crazy story. What an amazing I mean, just on a literary note, isn't this an amazing story? It really happened. And I want to just kind of summarize it for us because there's so much here and it's almost like, you know, I was telling you, Steve, it's such a hefty chapter. It's like, how, how do you even approach this? So I'm going to do my best to approach it this way and, and if I leave you wanting, forgive me, but this is what I felt like I needed to point out. I want to point out a couple of things. Um, first of all, I want to just summarize this. What was the Passover? Let me just read to you kind of my summary. You can take it or leave it. The Passover was God's provision of salvation from the plague of death that was on all the people by the means of a substitutionary sacrifice. It was a mouthful. The Passover was God's provision of salvation from the plague of death that was on all the people by means of a substitutionary Sacrifice. Now just think that scenario through. The whole land was under the plague of death. And do you think about this by the way? The whole land was under the plague of death, really, because of one man. Who? Pharaoh. Oh, is that fair that everybody should be under the plague of death because of one man's actions? Oh, tucked out away. But be that as it may for now, yes. But God provided an escape. He provided a way of salvation and that way of salvation was via a lamb and there's three things I want you to know and if you are a note taker maybe jot these down or at least think them through with me here's three things about this sacrifice that are important and then we're going to make that we're going to put the clutch in switch gears and make it relatable to Jesus and it's not hard to see number one this was God's exclusive provision of salvation it was exclusive in other words, God didn't say, okay, I'm going to give you two or three options, whatever you'd like to do, just to pick one of them, and it'll work. What did he do? He said, there's going to be one way out of this mess. It's exclusive. And I, I'll bet you 10 bucks, like I always say, that not one of them was like, I don't know about this. Why, why a lamb? What if I want to maybe paint my house with blue paint? You know, I I bet none of them were like, really, just one way, Moses? I bet all of them were like, hallelujah, there's a way, period. Maybe that's why they got down in worship, like death is coming and there's a way out. There was no squabbling over like, really, just one way? Silly to think about. Number two, Number one was it was exclusive. Number two, it was vicarious. I I use that word on purpose because it comes up a lot the more you're around Christian circles. And it's a good word to know. Here's the actual definition of vicarious. Vicarious means it, it means taking the place of another or standing in as a substitute. The whole, this is the whole point of this sacrifice. It was vicarious in nature. It was substitutionary in nature. It was very clear to these guys exactly what was happening when they took that innocent little lamb and took the knife to its throat and slid it and the blood drained out and that thing died and they're cutting it open and they're squashing around in the blood and slapping it on the door. Like they understood something. What? This lamb is dying so he doesn't have to. Instead of my son dying, this lamb is standing in his place. He's vicariously dying for him. The idea of substitution is huge in this discussion. They understood that. Thirdly, it was exclusive, it was vicarious, and number three, it was done in faith. Think about that. As Moses is explaining this means of salvation, I wonder if some of them were like, but I just, how does this work? I don't get it. That may have been true but they were like but this is what god said to do so i'm gonna do it and i guarantee parents were like in faith lord i don't want him to die i don't want my son to die or my so i am doing this i don't understand why we're slarping blood on the house but i'm doing it in faith there was faith being exercised I bet you there was like a little pressure from the firstborn in the family too if they understood what was going on. Can you imagine my my you know you probably other dad you miss a spot. Let's just paint. In fact, let's do the whole house. Like <laughs> his life is on the line. This may really sound elementary, but it's it's foundational because we're going to make the switch now. See, this was the Passover was God's provision of salvation from the death the plague of death it was on all the land by means of a substitution it was exclusive in that it was the only option it was vicarious in that it was a substitution one for the other three it was done in faith now let's talk about what this means for us and i know you guys are tracking with me i know you've connected the dots already but let's just hear it out loud what is this picture for us why is this chapter so impactful for us because listen Jesus is God's provision of salvation to a whole world that is under the curse of sin and death by means of a substitutionary sacrifice. And let's think through the elements of their situation and the elements of the greater situation. Number one is, the whole world is under the curse of death because of one man's actions. Pastor Steve just taught us this. It's Romans chapter 5. Listen to uh, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. When Adam rebelled against God, sin and death, not just physical death, but spiritual death entered into the world. Because we're all descendants from Adam, we have inherited a sinful nature. And this, by the way, is the line in the sand between a humanistic way of thinking and a biblical view way of thinking. Because the humanistic way of thinking says, at at the core of everything, people are really just good down deep. The Bible says, no, they're not. At the core of humanity, we're evil and we're rebellious towards God. And so we've inherited a sinful nature, but not only that, we've also done our own dirt. We can't just say, oh, but I wasn't Adam. Listen, you may not have been, but you inherited a sinful nature and you have also committed individual acts of sin that is rebellion against God. So that's why the Bible says in Romans 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. You have sinned. I've sinned. We are sinners. And the Bible says in Romans 6, 23, these verses sound familiar, class, from the Christian Life and Witness course. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, right? I think I misquoted that one. Check me later, Austin. The wages of sin is death. There is a paycheck for sin. You do the crime, you do the time, and it's death. So listen, The whole world, this is the greatest need of mankind. It's not clean water, as as great of a need as that is. It is not uh, education, as great of a need as that is. The greatest need of mankind is that we need to be forgiven of our sins. And the problem is we can't do anything to undo the sins we've already done. And there's a breach between God and man. But God has provided a way of salvation through Jesus Christ, his son. Jesus, now this, is, this one is worth noting a few things, Jesus is our Passover lamb. That lamb that they killed back then in Moses' day and all the subsequent lambs that died all the way up to, we're all foreshadowing and picturing Jesus as the ultimate Passover lamb. And by the way, this isn't one of those uh, typologies where we have to like make a stretch or guess. F- jot down 1 Corinthians chapter five, verse seven. It says, Christ, our Passover was sacrificed. The, the New Testament, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through the pen of Paul, translates, uh, makes this, makes this you know, easy for us. He says, Jesus was the Passover lamb. It was all pointing, it was like big flashing neon arrows to Jesus. He's the Passover lamb. And think it through the details of that Passover lamb. He was, by the way, without spot and without blemish. Listen to Roman, or Excuse me, Hebrews nine fourteen. Hebrews nine fourteen for your notes. It says, "How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience?" First Peter chapter one, verse eighteen: Knowing that you were ransomed from this futile way inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, without blemish or spot. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, 14. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus, 100% man and 100% God, is the only one that was the spotless person. Does that make sense? He's the only one that could qualify to be the sacrifice because he's the only one that went through 33 years of life with Sin. Why? He was born of a, a woman, mankind, but his father was God. He, wasn't in, he didn't inherit the sinful nature, but then he navigated life perfectly and never sinned one time, didn't get angry and kick his dog one time, didn't gossip one time, didn't lie one time, didn't have lustful thought that he entertained one time. He was without spot and he was without blemish. Amen? Yeah. Not only that, um, remember, by the way, just a point, Punch that point home. Pontius Pilate, when he stood before Pilate, three different times says, I find no fault in him. By the way, he rode into Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan and was if you would examined for those four or five days by the religious elites, just like the lamb would have been brought into the house on the 10th and looked over to make sure there's no blemish. They could find no blemish in the lamb and when they examined Jesus, they could find no blemish on on him. Then on the 14th of Nisan, they killed the lamb. Jesus died on the 14th of Nisan at twilight. From 12 to three, it was complete darkness over the land and it would have been from about three to five that they would have been, at the moment Jesus was dying on the cross, outside the city gates on the temple mount, they were slaughtering the Passover lambs for the memorial celebration. Jesus literally died at the same time, on the same day that the Passover lamb died. He was from among the flock, 100% man. He was killed, I told you, on the 14th of the Nisan. Um, I think it's interesting that, that hyssop was used. I already gave that one away. But they used hyssop for the blood to apply. They used hyssop in other sacrificial um, ceremonies later on. And it was in John 19 that they offered up Jesus sour wine on a stick with hyssop at the end. And it was all pointing to Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. One last one we didn't get to. But if you glance over to chapter 12, verse 46, it says, um, And you shall not break any of his bones. The lamb wasn't to have bones broken. Jesus, on the cross who died on the cross, The sun was going down, they're like, we gotta hurry this thing along. Uh, Rome ordered for the legs of the ones being crucified to be broken, why? Because if you broke the legs of somebody being crucified, now they couldn't stand up on their legs to give themselves air, they suffocated, they died that way. That's why they broke their knees, they broke their legs. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. So instead of breaking his legs, they shoved a spear up into his side where blood and water came out. And the commentary in John 19 is, thus fulfilling the scriptures. And it's circling back to this. Hands down, Jesus is that lamb. Jesus is God's provision of salvation to a world under sin and death by means of a sacrificial or substitutionary sacrifice. And real quickly, there's three things again. That sacrifice was exclusive. And listen, Jesus is the way, the truth in the life. There's no other means of being righteous before God. There's only one way to be saved. The mantra of our day and age is sincerity. If you believe enough about something, won't that qualify you? No, because you can be sincerely wrong because truth is objective. Truth doesn't depend on feelings. What's true is true and Jesus is true because how, well, how do you know Jesus is true? One sign. He raised from the dead, and that's the only sign we need. Amen? And that's my son crying for mercy. (laughs) Number two, pray for him. (laughs) Number two, the sacrifice was number one, exclusive number two, and this is the point, and I know I'm, I'm almost out of time. I'm already out of time, but this is the point. Jesus' sacrifice or God's sacrifice with Jesus is vicarious. It is a substitution. Jesus' death was in place of ours. And this is where it gets real sticky because we are living in a very, not only liberal day and age politically and all the rest, but theologically liberal day and age where more and more mainline denominational uh, groups are departing from this idea because they they like jesus they just don't like a bloody jesus and they want to believe in god but they don't want to believe in a god that has wrath and a righteous god we want to say god is love love wins god love 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 yes god is love but god is also just the bible says that life is in the blood leviticus 17 or eleven seventeen. 17 In Hebrews, I just got a slew of verses I can't go through, but listen, I just wanna make this very clear. The Bible teaches that when Jesus was on the cross, he was absorbing the wrath of God for the sin we committed. Sin is rebellion against God, and it deserves wrath. It it stores up wrath. I don't know if I wanna believe in a God that has wrath. Think this through for a minute. How do you feel when you read in the paper or the news that somebody kidnaps a five-year-old girl and violates her and kills her? What does that do to you? I don't know what it does to you, but it gets me angry. Somebody has to pay for that. And how unjust would it be for that guy, hypothetically, who did that to stand before a judge and the judge said, you know what? I'm just a benevolent guy, the judge of love going to sweep that one under the rug you're free to go we would cry out in outrage for the injustice right so here's the breakdown we have to understand something that our sin that we say is no big deal our little white lie our lustful thought our theft is high treason against the holy god and our sin deserves punishment and to say that God is this God of love and he's not a God of ju- it is a full-on breakdown of the understanding of who God is and it is a full-on breakdown of understanding what sin is. Jesus is the answer to God's dilemma of being a just God and a God of love. Here's the great dilemma. How can a just God justify unjust people justly? Right? How can a righteous God make righteous Unrighteous people righteously. How is God going to show mercy, which is what he wants to do, without compromising his attribute of holiness? The answer is Jesus. First John 2:2 2, 2 says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sin, the satisfaction. That it's a big Bible word. Basically means the atoning sacrifice or the satisfaction. And this is again where people break down, they go, I don't know. and, and, and I don't know if I want to believe in that, but listen, this is what the Bible teaches, that God did not hold back his wrath of sin. Jesus was treated like a child molester on the cross and a rapist and a murderer. He was absorbing the sins of the world that you and I have done. He was innocent. We were guilty. We should have been there, soaking up the wrath for our sin, but it was Jesus doing it instead. This is the scandal of the cross. This is the scandal of grace, the scandal of the gospel. It's not fair. It's unthinkable. And to, 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 to deny that is damnable. And the reason I'm a little edgy about it is I just, I was listening to another teaching from a different pastor on a different text, and, and this came up, and I asked him to send me the, the link. Um, this was from the Christian Examiner. I think it was actually from a couple years ago, but the, here's the headline. Scottish preacher, min, uh, minister preaches Jesus did not die for sins. And this guy is very representative of mainline liberal theological thought out there. Just a couple little quick excerpts. He says, uh, says a church in, in uh, Edinburgh, Scotland, is teaching his congregation that Jesus did not die for sins of humanity, calling the traditional understanding of Jesus' atoning sacrifice, quote, well past its cell date and ghastly theology. I'm just gonna skip down, is an obstacle because it depicts God as a a potentate who demands blood for offenses he suffered. Our sins have offended him and he demands a blood sacrifice. He says, I'm almost embarrassed explaining this theology because it's well past its cell date and has some, some sense of that in some sense it's quite immoral. Others have called it spiritual child abuse. This is a complete and utter total breakdown. If you remove the vicarious death of Jesus Christ on the cross for us, you remove the gospel. There's no gospel left. And to dumb it down to some, anything less than what it is, is to strip the gospel of its meaning. Amen? No, guys, no, 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 no. The death of Jesus was vicarious. It was substitutionary. It was for me, and it was for you. He was innocent. We were guilty. He took the death, he took the wrath of God, and he conquered sin and death and rose from the grave three days later. And God, and by the way, nobody took Jesus' life. Jesus said, I I, I lay down my life, and I'll take it up again, as the Father told me I could. And let us not forget, Jesus is God. It wasn't like God created somebody to go take the penalty for him. God took the penalty for us. Trip out on that. It's vicarious. It was his solution. And thirdly, just like them with us, it's only appropriated by faith. There's no other way. The great cry in humanity is what must I do to be saved? And it's one word, believe, believe, believe. Not just believe like it happened. The idea of belief or faith in the Bible is the idea of trust. It means putting your full weight upon something and you're saying, I believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he was dying in my place. I believe he raised from the dead. I don't deserve it, but he said I'm forgiven. So I am going to say, yes, God, I believe what you did was for me. Please come into my life, however you word it. That the only way to appropriate what Jesus has done is to actually paint the blood on the doorpost of your heart, so to speak. Take the step of faith. Because listen, it already happened. There's no changing that. But just because it happened doesn't mean you're gonna benefit from it. You've got to take the next step, which is faith. Amen? They worshipped, but then it says they went out and did it. Hey, you can, there's people that will worship, but they've never actually done it. So in closing, I know this is a very evangelistic message, but I want to ask you, have you, by faith, applied the blood of Jesus to your life? Have you? because you understand the gospel now. You're the sinner, he's innocent. You're under death, but he made a way. It's Jesus. It's exclusive, substitutionary, and only accessible by faith. Have you put your faith in Jesus? If you haven't, here's here's the reality. You're already dead, spiritually. and You're going to be dead physically and if you don't come alive spiritually before you die physically you will go on into eternity dead spiritually that was a mouthful but on this side of physical death you put your faith in jesus christ at that very moment you get eternal life eternal life does not start the day you die as a believer eternal life starts the day you put your faith in jesus and when you die physically it just goes to full experience amen Have you put your faith in Jesus? And before we close, I'll give you that chance. Lastly, those of us who have, what are we supposed to do? What's the application for us? Uh, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise his holy name. Understand today that all your sins are forgiven. Understand that we are forgiven not based on our merit and our being without blemish and our being without spot. The firstborn wasn't examined, the lamb was. And he's not examining you because you are in Christ. The lamb has already died for all of your sins. So when we come to worship and we come to praise God, he's not examining, is there any spot of blemish? No, why? Because Jesus already paid for all of those. Amen? We can celebrate and rejoice that we have been free. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Let's stand together, guys. And let's, before we lose it, I know it's late, but listen, before we lose our focus, let's bow our heads. And I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. I'm gonna talk to you for just a second. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, because it's very possible to come to church and not have put your faith in Jesus. If you're not born again, that's a term Jesus used. If you haven't applied what Jesus did on your behalf to your life personally, why not do that right now? If you're not sure, why go another moment? Well, I don't completely understand it. Okay, that's, that's fine. But at some point, you have to just trust and believe and step out in faith and say, I'm gonna put my faith in Jesus. Jesus. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I'm just gonna ask right now, is there anyone here tonight, by a show of hands, I just want you to raise your hand up to me, let me see it, that you say, I wanna receive Jesus tonight as my savior. I want to know and I wanna make sure I wanna put my faith in him right now. Anyone tonight, raise your hand. God bless you and you. Anyone else? You wanna make sure? See, I'm not gonna assume anybody, just because you come to a Wednesday night Bible study that we're all saved. I'm just gonna wait a second longer because I know from experience a lot of times it's that beating in your heart, and you want to raise your hand, but you're scared. Is there anyone else? All right, praise the Lord. Now I wanna say a prayer, but you have to say it. Because I can't get you to heaven. <laughs> I'm gonna lead in a prayer. In fact. Church, you can join in if you want to help them out, but let's pray this. Father in heaven, I know I'm a sinner. There's nothing I can do to undo my sin. I believe you died for me, and I believe you raised from the dead. I put my faith in you right now. Please be my savior. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's applaud the Lord, amen.